Welcome to the Blood Cancer Experience, a podcast by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada. This podcast connects people affected by a blood cancer to resources that inform, support, educate, and empower. When it comes to cancer, it's hard to navigate the unknown and there are no easy answers. We're here to bring you the information you need to help make sense of every step of the blood cancer experience. My name is Montana Skirka and I will be your guest host for today's episode. I work in the community as a certified yoga and meditation teacher and integrative wellness educator with a focus on providing patients with a holistic approach to mental health and well-being. I currently work with teens and adults one-on-one and in groups to help them overcome physical, mental, and emotional disorders through mindful movement modalities. As a childhood cancer survivor, I am dedicated to helping others navigate their journey to health and wellness through coaching, movement, and group facilitation. Today on the show, I am talking to Alyssa Brandone. Alyssa was only 11 years old when she was diagnosed with AML leukemia, just a few weeks shy of her 12th birthday. With the support of her parents, older brother, family, and friends, she was able to overcome the disease and with determination, strength, and plenty of moments of doubt. She went on to graduate high school, received a bachelor's in art history, and is now committed to helping end blood cancer by fundraising and working for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada. Alyssa and her husband recently welcomed their son, Cassian, in May 2022. Thank you, Alyssa, for being here. It's so nice to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Me too. It's a strange club that we're both a part of, but you know, it's so isolating. It's so nice um, to connect with someone who maybe shares some of my same childhood memories. Definitely. I always tell people, you know, this is not, you know, cancer is not something you want to be touched by in any way, shape or form. But once you are, you truly are part of a, a whole new community of people. And you find that you have a whole different support system behind you. So it it really becomes something beautiful out of something so negative. Yeah, that's such a beautiful way to reframe that, um, that it really is something that is so unique to go through, especially as a child, but really for all of us. So finding one another has been such an important part of my own healing journey. And um, yeah, it's an honor to talk to you. So I know that you were 11 when you were diagnosed with AML. Um, I'm curious to hear if you have any memories around that time of like what your, first of all, what your life was like before the diagnosis and then kind of do you have any memories of being in the hospital, of being diagnosed and kind of that initial time period? Oh, definitely. And I think memories work in a funny way where, you know, you're able to suppress some of the really, really bad moments, but just keep, um, you know, some that necessarily aren't positive, but, you know, still shape you in, in a way. Um, so yeah, I was 11 and do have plenty of memories of that time. Um, before my diagnosis, I was, you know, playing with my friends outside. I was getting ready to start my first year of high school. Um, so there was just a lot going on. We went on a summer vacation, my family and I, and I think it was around that time that we realized something was kind of wrong. Um, I had developed a kind of rash on my legs and we had gone to see, you know, doctors at the clinic and they just said, you know, apply some cream, it'll go away. 
Um, but it wasn't going away. And the key indicator looking back now was that we went to a beach vacation and we came back and my parents and my brother were all tanned and I was as pale, if not paler than when I left. Um, so my mom took me to my pediatrician and it was from there that we uh, did, you know, some blood tests. And with the blood test, we discovered I was anemic. And, you know, it just kind of spiraled from there. We were lucky that my aunt was actually the head nurse of the oncology unit at the hospital where I was getting all these tests. So she was kind of able to guide us a little bit of what could potentially become the out outcome. And I remember being in the car on the way to my bone marrow aspiration, not knowing what that even meant her telling me it could be a cancer and it could be that you're going to stay in the hospital for a long time. And these are scary things to tell anybody at any age, really. But I was kind of grateful for the realness of that conversation and the honesty because it wasn't shying away from the reality of what I was going to have to potentially go through. Um, and if I, it wasn't a cancer diagnosis, well, then I could have just forgotten all of that. But no, I did the bone marrow aspiration. My parents and my aunt had gotten the news before me. Um, my dad came to get me. Um, and I just remember he couldn't even look me in the eye. I was asking him, like, what's going on? And he just he just wouldn't answer me. So they put me in the wheelchair, wheeled me into the room. My doctor, Dr. Mitchell, is so blunt. And I'm so grateful for that now. Um he just told me, you have AML leukemia, cancer of the blood. Um, and it was there that I asked, you know, is this curable? I mean, my only notions of a blood cancer at the time were from movies, you know, um, and he responded treatable. And so today I know the difference. Back then it was, OK, it's kind of the same. There's a glimmer of hope. So and let, let's move forward. And I know I looked around the room and I saw my mom crying i saw my dad holding my mom oh my god it's getting me emotional now my aunt was there if, like we had any questions or anything like that it's there that i kind of black out on the day i don't remember a lot of what happened afterwards yeah thank you for sharing that so honestly and vulnerably and i think it is kind of sometimes surprising how even to this day it can still be so raw and so real um I think it's really interesting that you actually really appreciated the bluntness of both your aunt and your and your oncologist. I think for me, what that makes me think is that we are all different. So we all appreciate different things, right? Like that approach worked for you. And I'm so grateful that you were, you know, that that approach was useful, you know, that you didn't want anyone to shy away from anything. It kind of sounds almost like a certain level of maturity for someone so young be like, I just want to know everything and I want to be involved. Did you remember how life looked the weeks after that? I'm also really interested because you said you were starting high school that year and like for many of us, high school is not easy at the best of times. So I'm curious what that was like even navigating socially because um, I would imagine that would be pretty tricky with your life being so different than your peers. Yeah, it was definitely a spiral. Like the days following my diagnosis, it was just before my 12th birthday. So my family got together and threw like a really impromptu surprise party for me so that I wouldn't miss it. Um, and then unfortunately, I couldn't go to high school. Um, the treatment for AML leukemia requires you to stay in hospital for a really extended period of time. So I was in complete isolation from, I want to say, I was diagnosed on August 21st of 2002. 
August 23rd, I was admitted. And then I didn't leave the hospital until February 3rd of the following year. I was allowed to have like, you know, minor breaks um, in between where I was able to go home for a couple of hours, but I wasn't allowed to see anybody. I wasn't allowed to really do anything. It was mostly to just be in my own space. And I think that that's something that's really hard for us to even fathom how isolating and how scary and that would be. Do you, can you kind of paint a picture of what your days were like? If like, did it, did people come, I mean, I'm assuming your family was around, but it's still quite isolating being in a hospital for that long. Were there other patients you connected with? Like, how did you navigate through that time? It was definitely a challenge. I wouldn't say that every day was, you know, doom and gloom. You do find some really happy and positive moments in isolation, I guess you can say. We do have a very large network of family and friends. So yeah, we did have somebody coming to visit us pretty much every single day. My mom did stay with me throughout the six months. She stopped working. She stayed overnight at the hospital with me while my dad would come and visit and my brother as well, and they would stay home. We had a lot of people coming to visit. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to interact with the other kids on the floor face to face. Also, I was kind of the oldest patient on the floor. So it was a little harder to to find some, you know, common ground. But there were little things that I was able to do. Like I was really into arts and crafts. So I would paint, like draw little coloring pages for the kids on the floor. And we would interact in that way through letters back and forth. Um so that was that was really cute. On a day-to-day basis, it, it really varied. I did have some schooling. I did have some lessons that I would take. I had plenty of movies to keep me occupied, you know, game consoles. It's not like it is now where, you know, you have Wi-Fi and internet accessibility and, you know, flattened screen TVs. So you kind of make do with what you got. I was very grateful to have, you know, family come and visit pretty much every day. My aunts would be there all the time. My grandmothers, it it was really, in a way, it was a bonding experience at the same time. That's so interesting. There's a commonality there with the letters. So I was, I was seven when I was diagnosed. I had a different diagnosis of ALL. And so for me, there were certainly times where I was in the hospital for extended periods of time, but never for that long, right? So for me, it was a lot of like, Somehow we were able to get me in school and then with a lot of communication with the teachers, it was I was able to sort of navigate back and forth. And there was this one girl who was there. She was hospitalized. She, we were both diagnosed around the same time and we were – her name's Emmy. I haven't actually gotten in touch with her in a while, but it would be cool to reconnect. So she – we were the similar age, similar diagnosis, and our ourselves and our families bonded quite quickly. And we had chemo on different days. And so we actually set up like a board in the waiting room or in the kids' room. And then we would like send letters to each other that way, kind of like a pre a pre-internet form of (laughs) instant messaging. So it's really cool to hear that you actually had a similar experience. And I think it's just goes to show like, you know, how important that is, you know, for kids, for adults, for humans to connect with one another. And like we can kind of find ways no matter what. It's just nice to hear that your family was able to be there for you. And what was life like kind of after those six months? Well, how did your treatment go? And how were you able to integrate back into school? And how did that look? I left the hospital in February, so it was too late to go back into the school year. Also, there was a kind of, I guess I could call it a bubble around me. We were very scared of, you know, infection. I Relapse was always in the back of our minds. 
So we were, we lived very carefully, I want to say, for a good couple of months. I was able to have, you know, a cu- my cousin is actually the same age as me. So I was able to have her come over a couple of days a week. Um, same with a few neighborhood friends. Like slowly, slowly, we started expanding my social circle, I guess you can say. And then over the summer, you know, slowly we started realizing I'm going back to school. I'm, I'm going to start being integrated into, you know, in quotes, normal life. But yeah, in September, I started school. It was really scary at first because it felt like everybody knew who I was, but I had no idea who anybody was. Everybody pretty much knew me as the girl who had cancer from the year before. They had written me some messages of hope and inspiration to to send to the hospital. So they all knew my name. They knew who I was. And it felt like all people were talking to me about was, you know, my cancer journey and my diagnosis. But I felt like there was so much more to me than that. I really loved art. I loved soccer. You know, I really wanted to get the full high school experience, but I felt a little hindered at the same time. So eventually I started really pushing my cancer away. Like when people would bring it up, I didn't really want to talk about it. I just wanted to form my own identity outside of it. You know, I I was really like pushing it away versus now I really embrace it. I think it it shaped who I am. And maybe I did need a bit of that time to to heal and let go, but I think you know, recognizing that it, it made me who I am today has been a really healing experience somehow. Speaking to this kind of identity piece of like, okay, I have cancer. I had it. Now, how do I like understand myself? Because, you know, especially the younger you are, the more the more of your life you had that experience, right? Like we were pretty young. So it's not like we had tons of life experience. Of, I mean, honestly, your maturity keeps coming out to me. Like, I'm like, wow, for someone so young to be like, I'm more than this. And I'm, I like art and I like other things and not kind of letting that be your whole identity. I totally get why you would push it away and why you want it to be normal. I certainly had the same experience. Like I could have gone to Camp Uchigayas and I could, which was a a camp for cancer patients. And I didn't want to go because I didn't want to be defined by it. Looking back, I'm like, that would have been a really amazing experience for me. But I think there was also I don't know if it's the same for you, but there was like a stigma. Like I felt really embarrassed by it. You kind of touched on it a bit of feeling just like, okay, wait, everyone knows me. Like you're defined by this thing that is outside of yourself. And I think identity and like who we are and how we express ourselves is so important that to have this other thing kind of thrust upon, oh, the cancer kid is kind of can feel really isolating and shameful and strange. So yeah, I can really relate to that feeling of like, I want. do I want to embrace it? Do I want to push it away? And then hopefully over time, you kind of, it sounds like you've been able to sort of integrate it as like, this is an important part of me and I'm not just that. You're absolutely right. And when you mention, you know, embarrassing and shameful, I mean, it's not something you necessarily think about when going through a cancer diagnosis. And I still remember, you know, I mean, you go through leukemia, you lose your hair. I mean, it's just, chemotherapy, unfortunately, it's it's one of the side effects. And I remember like after I was discharged going into like a Walmart or something with my mother and I was wearing a handkerchief on my head and you have like grown adults, you know, just staring at you as if like, I don't know, you're from another realm or something. 
and you're like, you just kind of want to scream to them like, yes, okay, I have, I don't have hair. I had cancer, like get over it. You know what I mean? Like I shouldn't feel embarrassed over what I went through. You know what I mean? Like I should feel empowered, but you're kind of looking at me like I have four heads. You know, I just don't have hair. I'm still a human. Of course. And even some of that pity can also feel really strange. And I think what I've come to understand is how much fear there is. Childhood cancer is a very scary concept that people don't want to even acknowledge exists. And I sometimes I think that like we are these walking embodiments of things that people don't want to see or face. And that's part of what creates a strange feeling of like, why do I feel like an alien? <laughs> why am I ashamed and embarrassed of something that, that happened to me? But I think, again, there's like a level of maturity that you kind of step into that is well beyond your years. You're learning things that most people don't learn about mortality, about, you know, self, just all of these things you're talking about, about realizing, okay, I'm more than my diagnosis. I'm more than losing my hair, all of that stuff. So it sounds like your family was a really big, is a big part of your life and was a big part of your life. When I'm thinking about your experience of being in the hospital for six months and then coming out and still having to be so isolated, like it's so lucky that you have such a strong family unit and it just speaks to how important that is. So do you have an idea of what, have they talked to you about how they felt going through that and like what their experience was like? Because I know that it's it's not something that affects one person. It's something that affects a community. Definitely. Over the years, I mean, I've heard, you know, snippets and, and feelings, I guess you can say. It's still something that I think our family is still very scared to talk about. It feels, I think, it gets people very emotional, which, I mean, rightfully so. I do know that my brother had shared how he had received the news and he was at my my aunt and my uncle's house and they had sat him down with my cousins and just kind of shared it. And then, you know, for my brother, it wasn't just like him receiving the news. He had to go to school and he was trying out for like an elite hockey team. Um, so he was, you know, he was being a 15 year old and living his life and he was dealing with all these emotions like, is my sister going to be alive tomorrow? You know what I mean? Like, it's also really, really difficult on them. Um, my mom still has a very hard time talking about it. She gets very emotional. My dad and I are kind of the ones that are a little bit like we could carry on, you know, the legacy of our story to inspire hope, I guess you can say. But I know my dad also had a very hard time at the beginning. So I don't remember a lot of that day that I was diagnosed, but I do remember that my cousin had come to the hospital and took my dad into the hallway. And I think he needed his moment to like feel his emotion, to cry, to just let it out, but not in front of all of us. You know, there were a lot of emotions. It was very scary for a lot of us, but we were very lucky to have each other at the end of it. And it brought our families so much closer together. Wow. I mean, the fact that your mom still had so much trouble to speak, uh, speaking about it really, really speaks to how much of a traumatic event this can be for um, a lot of, you know, for family members. And I feel there's more research coming out now and more of kind of a focus on how we support parents, how we support siblings, which ultimately funnels down to our own support too, right? Because 
I don't know. I'm interested to hear if you ever felt kind of shame, not not shame, but guilt maybe. Did you, did, did that emotion ever come up? I know for me, it was kind of like, oh, I'm not meaning to, but I'm causing all of this sadness and harm that other people around me are experiencing. You just hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what it is. You know, like your parents, you know, job, I guess you can say is protecting you from from all the harm in the world out there. And this is something that they can't take the pain away. But it's something that you, I mean, it's not your fault, but are causing so much pain to other people that have to witness, you know, such a such a traumatic event. And my mom was with me day and night, right? So she saw the ins and outs of, you know, the good days, the bad days, uh, the days where a treatment had to, you know, change on the fly, the days where, okay, now your blood counts are elevated. So we're on a, a positive mend here. Um, so I, I kind of understand where she's coming from and, and that she can't talk about it as easily as, as the rest of us. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a guilt while you're in treatment. And there's also a, a guilt post-treatment that a lot of us survivors, I think, um, have a tough time dealing with. And that's just, you know, the idea of surviving and thriving versus others that are just going through their cancer journeys that are diagnosed or unfortunately pass on, you know, and it brings up that existential question of why me all the time. And I don't think that's something that ever goes away. But it's something that I feel I wish I would have acknowledged during my treatment. I really wish I could have given that question of why me more attention to heal from it. I should have acknowledged those feelings because for me, questioning why me or feeling sad or feeling guilty were such negative emotions. But I think back now, and I don't think they were negative at all. I think it's just part of the journey. And the sooner you can face them and talk about them and bring them up, the sooner you can you can heal from them and grow. Absolutely. I mean, there's so many things that are thrust upon you. And I think I can understand how you feel like, I wish I would have dealt with this sooner. And just acknowledging like how much you were dealing with at the time, I feel like there's kind of, for me, like there was a survival mode for a long time. And then it really took me into my 30s to begin to like heal some of these more emotional aspects that I didn't really understand that I was still living with and that were still impacting my life, like very fully in lots of different areas of my life. Um, so I think, you know, it takes it takes time and it takes a long time to unpack, especially because there's no one. I mean, I think there's more now than there used to be, but there's not a lot of resources or knowledge about the pediatric cancer journey emotionally and mentally, right? So there was a lot that we were navigating kind of on our own. I'm curious to hear about like your emotional and mental health and like how, you know, once you survived and going into survivorship up to this day, like if you feel that there were still things, I mean, you you spoke to one with it, which is the like, why me? The kind of guilt about that. Is that something that you still deal with? Are there other kind of emotional and mental health aspects of this this history that that you're still kind of working through or that you did work through post being declared a survivor? So like I had mentioned, I had pushed, you know, my cancer diagnosis away for a very long time. So there were some unresolved emotions, I guess you can say, that surfaced much later. And especially a little later on when I was about 16, because of a certain treatment that I had received, 
unfortunately it had damaged like some of the fascia around my heart and it's not like the biggest deal now obviously I was just on medication for a period of time but at at that moment I was just you know reliving that again like oh no like here's something else I need to I need to face you know of, of something so you know critical to put to your body like first I have the leukemia and now I'm dealing with an issue with my heart so it, it right away it just brought up all these emotions and it just made me feel like you know, when I was first diagnosed, I barely had any symptoms. And now here I am again, going into a regular checkup, and then all of a sudden them finding an issue. And it's, it brought a lot of anxiety, like even to this day, I'm still nervous going to see the doctor. I mean, I don't think that's ever gonna, that's ever really gonna go away. I still think like, oh, no, like, what if they find something like I'm feeling totally healthy, but I was feeling totally healthy back in the day. But I don't think those fears necessarily ever go away. But I'm very, very lucky that I have a very great listener in my husband who, you know, hears what I'm saying, who recognizes my anxieties and tells, reassures me, you know, tells me it's going to be okay. And even if something were to happen, knock on wood, we're going to deal with it and just, you know, move on from there. I was always somebody very headstrong. And I think that came out more so through my cancer journey. And so I do like to to face things head on. And so if ever there is an issue that comes up with my health, it's just, okay, how do we beat this now? So yeah, there were, there were, you know, moments of struggle and moments of anxiety for sure that were unresolved. And, you know, hearing of people close to me being diagnosed with a cancer does bring up those emotions again, but you recognize irrational and irrational thoughts. You know, it's, it's not happening to you you have control over your body, you know, like kind of repeating those mantras, I guess you can say. And then in an odd way, supporting others through the Leukemia Lymphoma Society of Canada has been rather cathartic as well. I mean, you don't want to keep hearing about people being diagnosed or anything like that. But, you know, being a part of their cancer journey and being able to support them through it and and bring them a little semblance of hope is has really been such a, a moving experience in my life. That's so beautiful. And I can resonate with a lot of what you're saying. First, in terms of like, I continued to have health issues pop up post-recovery, post being declared cured of the cancer and both mental and physical. And just feeling like one thing after the other, after the other, kind of like this like, why me, frustration, anger, everything coming up again, that like spiraling. And then also on the more positive note of, of the f- working with folks who are going through difficult health challenges has been so cathartic for me, so healing for me, staying connected within that community and like feeling like I have agency, not only in my own life, but then also helping others. So I can really, really resonate with that. And I would love to hear if you have any sort of pieces of advice or wisdom for children that are being diagnosed, their siblings, their family, like what what could you tell someone? I mean, I think there's so much wisdom that you've already imparted, but just if there's anything else. I think it's just reiterating that it's okay to feel like it's okay to question why me? It's okay to feel sad some days. It's okay to feel angry. It's okay to be frustrated. These aren't negative emotions. It's really part of the journey. Acknowledge them. 
give them the space, give them that time, that's when you can enter the realm of healing them. There needs to be more of a conversation. Obviously, it depends how old you know your child is, but there needs to be a conversation that recognizes all the emotions of a cancer experience. Ask, you know, how are you feeling today? Ask if, you know, if something isn't feeling right to them. Validate the emotion. We live in a world of a lot of, I feel, suppression. And that's what really causes these emotions to bubble and just build up over time. It's really best to overcome them now. This way you don't have all those feelings of anxiousness and resentment and, you know, that it feels unresolved later on. So I think it's so important for for parents and children to really connect and and talk it through. And I know that, you know, sometimes parents don't want to share exactly what's going on, you know, with their child. It, it can be scary to talk about cancer and possibilities of treatments and all that. But I think there's, you can frame it in a way of just, you know, how do you feel being in the hospital today? Like, how do you feel missing school? Like, are you okay? Like, guess what though? You do this and tomorrow you're back at home doing whatever. Like, I, I think it's important to to talk about the whole experience and really get those emotions out there. And lastly, like I said at the beginning, I always tell people that you know, nobody wants to be affected by a blood cancer, any cancer, but you're not alone. Even if it's in your darkest moments and you're feeling awful, just know that there are people out there without you even knowing that are supporting you, that want to help lift you and help you thrive even later. It's so true. When you were speaking, I thought of this quote and I don't remember who said it, but it's, if you can feel it, you can heal it. And I think that that's such wise words to really make sure that we understand that all of our emotions are valid and real and important and finding ways to healthily express them no matter who you are, no matter how, you know, no matter if you were just diagnosed or it's 20 years later, like just allow yourself to be witnessed in your expression of your emotions, to feel it, to heal it, to continue on the healing journey, and to know that you're certainly never alone. So thank you so much, Alyssa, for taking the time to talk to us today. If listeners have any questions about this podcast or need any support or resources to navigate your experience, I encourage you to connect with the community services lead in your region. For more information, visit Blood Cancers. I think that's really important. It connects to what we just talked about. Like, don't feel shy to reach out. If you liked our podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can find us wherever you access your favorite podcasts. We also welcome any ideas for our program, so we would love to hear from you. Send us an email with your suggestions or comments at info at bloodcancers.ca. Until next time, stay well and stay connected.